Since everyone has a gender journey, Gender Journeys is a podcast for everyone. That being said, we occasionally touch on mature themes and use strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Relevant content warnings can be found in each episode's description. And welcome back to Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Al. Hey, y'all. All right, so what are we talking about on the podcast this week? Uh, the DSM and the mental health community. Gross. Yeah, pretty much. So what, in particular, a about the DSM and the mental health community are we talking about? Well, I mean, I'm going to talk about some gender stuff, as we do here on Gender Journeys. That makes sense. And just some history of the DSM. For anybody who's, like, newer, I'm getting my master's in... What's the technical name of my degree that I'm getting? Master's in counseling psychology, I think is the technical name. I'm going to be a professional licensed counselor eventually, which is basically, like, a mental health practitioner. You would think of me as a therapist, but Mm -hmm. you may or may not know there are several degrees that fall under the term therapist. This is one of them. There we go. So anyway, I know some things about the DSM. I have actually read it cover to cover. How did you enjoy that? It was awful. It was was horrific. So the DSM is kind of fraught for a lot of reasons, I feel like, right? Like, I, I think that you've described to me as you've learned more and more about the DSM that it's like very existence is a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like. It's necessary, but so for counselors at least, so I have to zoom out a little bit so people can understand the biases I'm working with. So basically, if you think of a therapist, if you're like a layman person and you like want to get some mental health help, you're going to go to a therapist first off. And I will not be going into this. Please don't use better help or any of its kin. Go to an actual human being. Uh, But if you go to an actual human being therapist, that person is going to have one of three different degrees. No, four different degrees. There's a lot of ways to be a therapist. It's <laughs> just a lot of ways to be a therapist. There's a lot of ways. So you could be a psychologist, which means you have a PhD in counseling psychology. You could be a psychologist and have a PsyD. Don't question me on that. I don't actually know what it is, but it's also a doctorate. It takes four or five years. And then you could be a therapist from the master's level. At that level, you could either be a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed professional counselor. And that means that you either got your master's in social work, specifically with like some sort of concentration in clinical social work, as opposed to administrative social work. And then the other one, the path that I'm taking is your master's in clinical psychology. And then there are further specializations of that. You can go into like family counseling, you can go into like addiction counseling, you can go into uh, rehabilitative counseling, which is for people with disabilities to get them back to working, basically. Mm. That has its own set of issues. Or you can go into mental health counseling, which is what I'm doing. Nice. So I'm just, I bring all of that up because counseling, the way that, first off, counseling is the newest of those three plus paths. Psyche is, I don't know, Psyche is weird. They're basically psychologists though. But counseling is the newest of those three plus paths. Psychologists have been around since forever and social workers have also been around since forever. Counselors are new. Counselors like really only started existing, I think, in the last like few decades. Hmm. Um, And the way they differentiate themselves, we differentiate ourselves, is that we're based on a wellness model. 
So I think everybody is inherently happy and healthy, and we just need to get them back there. As opposed to a medical model where we are looking at people's pathologies. Okay. There's a lot that I could dive into there. But anyway, so the DSM doesn't actually jive with counseling, at least. Interesting. Because it's a, it, it pathologizes. It looks at you and it sees you as a list of symptoms and it slots you into a box. Okay. Whereas the kind of counseling ethos of wellness-based is more like, how can we make you as good as you could be? Or like, right. or like feel as good as you could be, I right. guess. I also guess I'm not yet a licensed counselor and I do feel like I need to put a disclaimer in there. And like also, even if I was a licensed counselor... Uh, this podcast does not count as therapy. If you need mental health support, seek a counselor. Yeah. Psychology Today is a great place to start. Yeah. People offer sliding scales, so it can be made affordable mm-hmm. in most places for most issues. There's some issues there too. But anyway, listening to this podcast doesn't count as mental health support uh, just because I am two semesters into my graduate program. <laughs> Um, I think for legally, once I'm a licensed counselor, I, ha- I have to put disclaimers like that in. But I'll just practice now, you know? There we go. May as well. <laughs> um, okay. So if the DSM doesn't really work for your career path, like if, if counseling... Yeah, bestie. And the, the answer DSM... to whatever question you're setting up, it's going to be insurance. It's always insurance. It was, why do you even use it? Though? Yeah, it's insurance. Why do you need um, it for insurance? Everything that's bad in everything basically boils back down to insurance. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Why do we need it for insurance? Well, do you want to pay $120 an hour for your therapy? I would rather not. Okay, so we're going to need to have your, your insurance. And then your insurance is going to say... Why does Josie need to see this professional? And that professional needs to say, because this bitch got anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. Here is the code. Here is the symptomology. Here is the list of times that she's had anxiety. This is why she needs therapy. Please pay for it. And so how does that (laughs) relate to gender? The fact that gender dysphoria is in the DSM. That's the that's the sticking point that relates to gender. Okay. And I think it's the way that a lot of trans people come to therapy right so again for those who are like unfamiliar or haven't had to experience this or maybe you're not even trans you're just here for learning hey that's cool of you welcome yeah it's a cool podcast we uh, do our it's best. A fun time in the u.s again our non-u.s listeners i apologize the dsm also by the way is not universally used in the way that the u.s uses it so i guess we should disclaimer here this is a very u.s centric episode that's a good point um i think many other countries use something called the icb Mm, I don't know. The codes are ICMs, I think. Anyway, they use something else. The, the I stands for international. Um, I don't know very much about it, obviously. Right. Well, I mean, if the US doesn't use it, then it's, it's not featured very heavily in your particular Right. We don't talk about education. Them at all. The DSM has those codes as well, in case you're working in a system that uses both, which I think that even places that don't use the DSM as stringently, as is so many things with the bad things the US does. You can't get away from them. They still heavily influence healthcare in other countries. Yeah. So I don't know about other places. Mm. Anyway, in the US though, if you are trans, looking back, I swear we're talking about gender things. This is obviously something I'm deeply passionate about and angry. I mean, it's very specific the way that in the US, queerness and in particular gender has been 
pathologized yeah, in okay. the past. So I think also it's notable that homosexuality was in the DSM until way later than it needed to be. I'm right. not going to give an exact date because I'm not exactly sure, but it was in there for like a very long time. Yeah. If you ever want to learn like some weird ass gay history, the way that homosexuality was removed from the DSM was a wild time. Somebody had to come like an- anonymously. There was like a gay psychologist Mm-hmm. Because, of course, there was a gay psychologist, and he was like, we shouldn't be doing this, and he wanted to speak at this conference, but he literally only agreed to do so, like, in disguise, because he didn't want everybody to know who he was, and so he's there's, like, pictures of him in this horrific mask. It's really, it's really, it's just spicy. It's just so, it's so odd. <laughs> it's such That's an so odd thing weird. to have happened. Anyway, so we got removed, which is good. But gender dysphoria is still in the DSM. And, but, I was under the impression that between homosexuality itself being removed from the DSM and our current situation with gender dysphoria being the DSM, there was like a transgender yes. disorder. Yeah, so it used to be gender identity disorder. Okay. And yes. so... which was different slightly. So how was that different? It's not different enough. Um, okay. So t- the difference, and it is an important difference in that it is a huge step in the right direction, but like... A huge step if you're like 50 miles from the right direction. It's not that, it's not that great. So it used okay. to be gender identity disorder, which okay. meant that like as long as you were trans, you would have gender identity disorder because like you were still trans. So like being trans was a yeah. disorder of the mind. Yeah, I should say I've never looked at the criteria for gender identity disorder, so I don't know exactly what it was, but that's my understanding of mm-hmm. it. Well, because it's from an, it's from an older version of the yeah. DSM, right? I read the DSM five cover to cover. Gender dysphoria, however, you could be trans and not have gender dysphoria disorder, similarly to how you could be trans and not have gender dysphoria. Right. Although that gets spicy, because if you want uh, surgeries in the U.S., most of them, if not all of them, if you're going through insurance, require a diagnosis of gender dysphoria disorder. Right. Even if the state that you are in is an informed consent state, a lot of insurance policies won't cover like even for like i know that there are some places that like code their hormones as hormones or blood tests as dietary or uh or endocrine problems because like insurance won't cover it otherwise yep but it gets worse for surgeries there are still lots of surgeons who will still require and like it goes on the scale that you'd expect so like top surgery most a lot of surgeons won't require a letter but the insurances all require a letter Mm -hmm. bottom surgeries it's like multiple letters like like the expectation from my understanding from bottom, for bottom surgery is that you have one therapist you've had a long-term relationship with. What defines long-term relationship depends on the insurance and the surgeon that's asking for it. But like think six plus months that that therapist has to say that you have gender dysphoria disorder. And then you also have to have a one-off session or like a couple off sessions with a like neutral third party in case i don't know you duped your first therapist um into believing you so you have to have a second mental health professional say that you also have gender dysphoria disorder gender dysphoria disorder interesting okay and so the old version of this was that broadly transgender people as like a big umbrella are Mm -hmm. just not right in the head yeah and then people were like hey that's um on its face offensive you can't do yeah that. that's that's like the definition of transphobia besties yeah yeah so then they tweaked it very slightly and they said okay so it's not that 
trans people are inherently disordered. It's yes. that they have a disorder in which they want to be a different gender. Right. And then that, I mean, that's a little bit uh, tongue in cheek. It the gender. I don't actually know what the criteria are for gender dysphoria disorder, but it is. It does seem like they just very slightly tweaked the language to make it like. Yeah, from my understanding, and I mean, it makes sense because I think that there is an argument to be made that gender dysphoria is a mental health concern. It belongs in the DSM in so much as anything that belongs in the DSM. Because like, I personally think that many mental health, and this is like just my personal opinion. This is not counselors. This is just me. My personal opinion is that almost all disorders can have either internal, intrinsic, biological neurotransmitter-based reasons for them, but most of them have societal reasons. So if you have anxiety, like, bestie, let's talk about your mom. Let's talk about, like, for you, it had a lot to do with your transness. Let's talk about your marginalized identities. Also, when you say anxiety, is that because you stay awake at night stressing about your bills? Well, but do you have enough money to pay your bills? Oh, no, you don't? Okay, well, that's not really, like... That's not anxiety. <laughs> or it, it might be anxiety, but it's not but it's like not a intrinsic neuro- based anxiety. It's not a neurochemical disorder that's causing. And I mean, you it to might now be neurochemically based because, like, the anxiety is changing your neurochemicals. But yeah, it's exogenous. It it happened first outside, right? And I mean, like, oh, you're stressed about COVID? Yeah, bestie. Like, that's an appropriate response. But you still deserve to have treatment for it, and it still it can like it might still be distressing, mm-hmm. and you still deserve to have like the label that feels best and the label that opens the door for your insurance to actually pay for shit. Right. And like that allows you to get medication if that's what you need. But also like there is this distinction between internal and external based disorders in my mind or experiences of disorders. Right. So I think understanding that the DSM has both of those types of disorders in it, both ones that are internally based and externally based. And some disorders can be both. both. Yeah. I think most disorders can be both. I think that that means there's an argument for gender dysphoria disorder to be in the DSM because, yo, here's the baseline. Gender dysphoria is distressing. Unlike being gay or being trans, which are not internally distressing, gender dysphoria can be internally distressing. Right, right. Now, I think the reason the homosexuality and transness were in there to begin with is, yes, they actually are being gay or being trans, especially in a certain time, especially in a certain body, itself is distressing. Right. But like... But the people who initially created those diagnoses weren't thinking in necessarily in terms of the like holistic, what is like a baseline non-distressed person. It was kind of just like, well, these people, these folks certainly are wrong. Yeah. And like also the fact that like gayness is in the DSM supports stigma against being gay which makes it harder to be gay which puts the the being gay in the dsm which support it's it's a self-fulfilling cycle right so that's my personal opinion (laughs) on whether or not the dsm should actually have gender dysphoria in it because also like it's a natural stage of being trans that's probably going to exist for a long time even if you immediately had access to all of the things that you needed all of the treatments etc there's still probably going to be a time period Mm -hmm. hopefully shortened In which you have dysphoria. Because, like, even if the day that you, like, admitted to yourself that you were trans, you could, like, go to one website and be like, I am trans. Here are the transition steps I would like to take. And they gave them all to you immediately, which would be lit. Wouldn't that be great? That would be fun. There's still, it takes time for hormones to work. It takes time to schedule surgeries. It takes time to decide if you want surgeries. It takes time to heal from surgeries. It takes time to 
build new closets. It takes time for friends and family to learn new pronouns and names. So even if in in like a perfect world, there's going to be a period of time where an individual is likely dealing with some internal gender dysphoria. Right. And having a manualized like, hey, this is this is what this particular distress your client is feeling might be related to. And here's maybe how you can help to treat that. Yep. And here's uh, for the insurance. Here's a code. Um, here right. is, yes, we believe that you should be seeing, you should be having somebody to talk to about this experience, you know? Man, if we lived in a perfect world where you could instantaneously access all gender steps, but we still had the private insurance system we currently have, I don't really know <laughs> if I would actually make that choice. I feel like I'd rather. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of my understanding of the UK system. Uh, if anybody's listening to this and has opinions on that statement, let me know. Well, that's a very good point. <laughs> but that's I like an extremely feel like good that's point. what the UK system is, No. <laughs> That's a good point. Anyway, (laughs) I think that like there is some basis, like even outside of stigma. Okay. Dysphoria is a thing that will persist. Right, right. And so it's it's helpful for mental health practitioners to learn about dysphoria, understand that it is something that their clients may experience, and be prepared to help people, to guide people through it. Now, the fact that it's used as a gatekeeping measure, though, where a therapist has to say, yes, this person has enough gender dysphoria to get the surgeries or whatnot that they need is obscene right and so that was my next question to you is what is wrong with gender identity dysphoria being in the dsm and specifically i guess how it's used in relation to the dsm it's yeah it's the gatekeeping mechanism i mean there are still some places where you need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria to get hormones right i mean like besties like that's not it and also like needing multiple therapists and like also for me i had like i had amazing therapists i had two whole non-binary therapist and it took me almost a month and a half to get my fucking letter right like that's just delays and it's no and also for many people it ends up just being a fee as is often the case with like mental health gate kept things right like you just have to go see a therapist like there are therapists and they will charge you extra because like writing the letter quote unquote um is extra work on their part which is a hard no, in my opinion. And we kind of talked about this a little bit in a previous episode when we talked about the barriers to getting gender-affirming care and, like, why we believe that you should just let people go and do it because, like, nothing makes you actually think very hard about the gender-affirming steps you want to take, like being told, yeah, I can get you that tomorrow. Also, just, like, if anybody's listening to this and is at any point ever going to need a letter from a mental health uh, specialist... For something like this, um, don't pay them a fee to write you a letter. First off, the letters are um, like manualized. You find one, you fill in the pieces of information. And at best, you can offer that they can do it in session with you. And then they can charge your fucking insurance for it. There are therapists out there who are like, it's going to be $125. Thank you. Like, no, it doesn't take you an hour to write this. It doesn't take an hour of highly skilled labor for sure. Like we can write it together in session in like 15 minutes it'll take. If that... My therapist that I'm now with, who I love with my whole heart and soul, just wrote it by themselves, like an adult. Right. Like, I sent them a template, because my surgeon sent me a template, and I sent that along to my therapist, and my therapist and I, in session, were like, we'll answer all the questions, and then fill out the letter, and here's your letter, you know? And and your insurance is really good. Really good. It's an Illinois insurance through a university. Yeah. And we got your- And a fancy one of that. And a fancy one. And we got your- top surgery in 
San Francisco. Yeah. So, I mean, I got him in like two of the most liberal states. Right. And so like you like all, we flexed all of our privilege to get yeah. you in there. Yeah. And it did. And I mean, to be fair and like... For comparison, that means I went from making the decision to get surgery to eating teas in, like, under five months. It was, like, four months. Right. And there was still this red tape. Yeah. And and part of the reason we made the previous episode about gender, about the timing of gender-affirming care, or, like, the gates in front of it, is because, like, I remember you being very frustrated that you couldn't explore it not being the right option for you yeah i mean we eventually did you and i worked through that yeah you and, and me and my therapist and you and your therapist worked through that yeah but like when you were talking to other people around you it was really hard to be like yeah is this the right move because if you if you even like kind of slip up on it along yeah, the way like people are like well you must not want it enough and i'm like besties yeah yeah so gender dysphoria there's an if you know if you know, you know. There's a new DSM coming out. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you know, you know. There's, if you're there, plugged in. Yeah. It's not really a new DSM. It's the text revision of the DSM-5. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, the whole gender identity disorder uh, only left, was only cut out in the DSM-5, which was in um, 2013. So, just to be clear. That's a good point. Maybe, hist- maybe, maybe our historical section should have been a little clearer that, like, up until I graduated high school... Uh, yeah, I mean, the co- the DSM that I learned when I, so I did my undergraduate in neuroscience, so I didn't do a lot with the DSM. The neuroscientists are a little bit <laughs> poo-pooey on the DSM and psychology in general. But I took a clinical neuroscience class, which mm-hmm. is a hilarious string of words because that's just psychology. That makes sense. But we learned the DSM there, and I remember my teacher was like, the DSM-5 is out, but I don't know the DSM-5, so I'm still going to teach you the DSM-4 TR. Which made sense in this setting because none of us were going to ever use the DSM. It was more of like a a hypothetical fun time for us. So I was taught the DSM-4. And we didn't talk about gender identity disorder. But like I was taught from the DSM-4, which had gender dysphoria in it. I'm sorry, gender identity disorder in it. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And like... And that's in college, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I think about... I know that there was at least one transgender kid at my high school, which... Mm -hmm. They probably did not have a great time at the high school I went to. <laughs> and also, they were probably diagnosed with the transgender disorder, which yeah. is weird yeah. to think about. Like this, that's like that's our lifetime. Like that is yeah. very recent history. Yeah. And like either of us, if our lives had got a little bit different, if we'd come out sooner, could have gotten that actual diagnosis on our records. Yeah, I was already in therapy in twenty thirteen. Yeah. I wasn't, but I had other things going on. So <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I think another thing kind of looped into that, like the other stuff that I was going through and like my own journey to figuring out my gender. Mm. One thing that was a big sticking point for me was that at the time I didn't think I had dysphoria. I, looking back, I definitely did. And like, as I have gone forward, I can now recognize dysphoria a little bit better. Yeah. A common experience. Uh, yeah. But also, I think that there's something very interesting that happens with having gender identity disorder in the dsm and how that like it doesn't necessarily just gatekeep surgery that is like the most like actual like sociological barrier like that is the thing that legally you do get barred from you said gender identity disorder but are you talking about gender dysphoria i am talking about gender dysphoria disorder thank you you're good so gender dysphoria disorder they're so similar it's true the fact that gender dysphoria disorder exists in the dsm-5 implies that there is a disorder that you can get 
that legitimizes your transness. Yeah. And like that is already used shittily by doctors and insurance agencies to keep people from care, as we've already talked about. But it also like we talked a while ago about transmedicalism and true scums Mm -hmm. and how like there are people who are like in order to be trans, you have to have diagnosed gender dysphoria disorder or else you're not really trans you're just too cute you're you're trans trender or whatever the hell yeah and like that's very frustrating too because it both stigmatizes the idea of being trans by saying like you have a disorder and also makes it so that only a narrow definition of what it means to be trans is possible and that definition inherently requires you to be distressed about your transness yeah all of which just conflates into being like and what happens being trans is bad being trans is bad what happens when your trans when your disorder goes away are you no longer trans do you stop being well and i mean i think that goes back to my definition of the gender dysphoria because like yeah it makes a little bit more sense right if you are treating it as a potentially transient but real distress or a distress that will have to be managed but can be managed rather than like an intrinsic pathological part of yourself yeah one of the criteria that stayed through it was in gender identity disorder and now it's in gender uh dysphoria and like it's important to understand what criteria are reading and applying criteria is something you get a master's degree in order to do so like take this with a grain of salt but one of them is in boys princey's assigned gender so that's nice um (laughs) gold star (laughs) gold star it gets worse. That's the best. We're on the top of the mountain there, so stay with me. <laughs> In boys assigned gender, a strong preference for cross-dressing or simulating female attire, or in girls assigned gender, a strong preference for wearing only typical masculine clothing and a strong resistance to wearing typical feminine clothing. And that's in both? Like, that, that, yeah, that's a male version? It's it, it, it like this ported it on through? Uh-huh. I think they might have assigned added assigned gender okay. um my big question is why cross-dressing is only for boys why don't it's just a weird one it's just that is weird one. i was i was just thinking like it's not i guess it's not cross-dressing I guess it's not, not cross-dressing because like you can masculine just wear... clothing are is more neutral in our society yeah anyway so in summary the psychological community specifically dsm has a very fraught history with queer the people. mental health community thank you the psychologist would like you not to loop us into the psychological community Valid. <laughs> the mental health community has a very fraught history with queerness. Very. Like, homosexuality was in the DSM until when? Mm. We didn't really talk about timelines on that. It came It came out in the DSM-3, I think. 1973. 1973. Okay. And so that's, I mean, that's my parents' lifetime. Yeah. But, like, still a little bit longer ago. Yeah. A more comfortable time distance more for us young people. <laughs> a more comfortable time distance for us young people. That's like my parents were my parents were teenagers. They were that that is a while ago. Yeah. But then like gender identity disorder, that's uh-huh. the that's the old version. Gender identity disorder stayed in the DSM until 2013. 2013. Yep. And is still in there as gender identity disorder. Which or gender dysphoria disorder. God, I can't get them straight. <laughs> which to your point. It's not necessarily like if we were if we were approaching these cri- these like topics in a more nuanced way yeah. and in a more wellness focused way and like not as a gatekeep because I think that's the issue with the DSM is the DSM isn't inherently bad because like having so primarily what the DSM allows to happen is continuity of care so 
Josie has some wild anxiety. And if I mm-hmm. if was Josie's therapist and I could be like, all right, Josie suffers from GAD. And like I could mark down GAD as generalized anxiety disorder within the DSM. Uh, I could write down, uh, you know, Josie suffers from GAD, primarily criteria one, four, and six. I think there's seven criteria for GAD. And then Josie could go to another therapist and I could pass along my notes with Josie's consent. And the next therapist would have a good starting place. As opposed to if I was just like, Josie doesn't like parties and gets really anxious when there's lots of people or it gets really stressed. Like if I use like it, it, it gives us a language, it gives us a shared right. language and a shared definition, a very, very specific shared definition, which is really important when we're helping people, you know, right. <laughs> like it helps us like it helps to label things. And also with things like neurodivergent disorders, quote unquote, disorders that fall under the neurodivergent category, like knowing that you are autistic or have ADHD can help you find community. It can help you find tools that help you. Like, and that's that's true to a lesser degree with anything in the DSM, mm-hmm. so long as it's an accurate diagnosis. Otherwise, you might run into issues. But yeah. like, if you're accurately diagnosed from the DSM, it can be super helpful. It can be super validating. It can open up not shitty insurance-based doors that help do help. So it is like, it has a space. It's just that we deeply, deeply misuse it. And also it's just that, um, and this is a really easy statistic to remember. So I encourage everybody to remember it forever. 69% of the people who wrote the DSM had connections to Big Pharma. Um, so also the DSM is just there to get you a diagnosis so that you can take antidepressants. Right. <laughs> and like, I think that that is where it really breaks down is like, in theory, having that shared language would be really great for yeah. continuity of care, for helping and it people. Is. It, it, not just in theory, that is true. Right, yeah. And like, it can be really helpful for just like making sure that you get the help that you need. Yeah. And then also, there is a lot of stigmatization around the fact that they are called disorders. Yeah. That, that having something in the DSM and going to a mental health practitioner itself is considered stigmatizing in yeah. this time. And like that a lot of the diagnoses are in addition stigmatizing. And the diagnoses are inflated for political purposes. Right. So like what I mean by that is like there's an, there's there's a binge eating disorder. I think that's what it's called. It could be wrong. But anyway, in between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, it got inflated to like basically anybody who eats like a normal human could 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 be diagnosed with this um it's like have you ever eaten enough that you felt regret afterwards have you ever eaten more than you intended to it's like all these like very simple things and like it's treated with antidepressants and like you can't look at that and not think it's connected to how many people in the writing committees were connected to big pharma companies who want to sell specific antidepressants you know right so yeah so there's a lot of reasons that the dsm has some questionable intentions or content. And though it could potentially be a really good communication tool and a really great way to help people, the fact that it stigmatizes and pathologizes people and acts as a really, really huge gatekeep against people accessing care yeah, all kind of cheapens it, perhaps. Yeah, let's say lessens its ability to be helpful. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you would... Any last passing thoughts on gender dysphoria disorder? No. No. Have, I guess you've been officially diagnosed with it. I don't think I actually ever was. I mean, I had to get top surgery. So yeah, man, I have yeah. a letter and everything. Yeah. They also make you get diagnosed with it again if you want to get revisions, which is fun. That's, just really, so you know. that's really stupid. Yeah. 
That's really dumb. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have to do it in Boston, and I've just been continuing care with the HRT for since then. So yeah. Anyway, I think that is where we're going to wrap it up this week on Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Bye, Elle. And until next time, just keep thinking about it. Music for Gender Journeys composed by Sonia Berdash. If you want to stay up to date with Gender Journeys episodes or just want to say hi, you can follow us on Twitter at gender underscore journeys or on Tumblr at genderjourneys.tumblr.com. You can also find us online at josiewrites.com slash gender journeys. We hope to hear from you soon.